0: Good evening. You have to put up with me twice today. <laughs> so, so you'll probably be glad that next week that somebody else is up here. So, so it's good to see everybody this evening. Our uh, opening hymn is number 517. What a friend we have in Jesus. Let's stand as we sing. Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for for the blessings that you've bestowed on each of us. Father, we just thank you for the message uh, that you shared with Pastor Tony this morning. And we just pray that uh, we might take it and use it in our everyday lives. Father, we just pray for all those who are sick and shut in, those on our prayer list. We just pray for each of them. We just pray that they they would reach out to you that thy will be done in each of their lives. Father, as we uh, go into the rest of the service, we just pray for Pastor Tony. We pray that you you give him the words that you would have him to speak to us and that we would open our hearts to hear those words. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There were a lot of announcements this morning, and uh, just to emphasize a, a few of those, uh, uh, there were a couple people that uh, were added, or several people maybe that were added to the prayer list. Uh, Joe Parks uh, was added to the prayer list, and um, there were a couple others, if I remember right, but uh, uh, he's alive, he's alive this week, 12, 13, and 14 in Wheeling, the 12th, 13th and 14th in Wheeling. Um, uh, I mentioned the Amani uh, choir. Uh, I didn't mention this morning, but, I, but I do need to get some feedback from people. Even if they're just interested, it's not a commitment, but if they're interested and want to learn more, I know we have some time, but, but I need to get some information back to the people there. So if, if you're interested or have a question, please, please get with me about, uh, uh, housing some of the choir members when they're when they're here back in July. Uh, today is the last day to uh, to sign up for the fellowship dinners. So if you haven't signed up and want to come on this Wednesday to the fellowship dinner, then uh uh you need to to uh, get that information and probably leave it in the office this evening. Uh Children's workers, Beth still needs children's children's workers. Uh, the uh, video Bible study is this, is coming up on the 15th, so you can still sign up for that. And, uh, if, if you have your bulletin, or if you don't have one, you can get one back to the sanctuary there. There's a, there's a whole series of reminders for the, the April calendar here that's coming up associated with, uh, with Easter. Any other announcement that we need to make this evening? Do we have any birthdays, Carol? Okay, we need to add Carol's son Sam to the prayer list, who has some possible infection and problems with his leg. So, right. Okay, someone else had their hand up there. Birthday. Okay, Kay has a birthday. And Dorothy both, and Debbie. My goodness, this must be a must've been a popular week. <laughs> okay, well, we're gonna have to sing Happy Birthday, and I have to microphone. <laughs> Anniversaries this week. Okay, <laughs> so, ninety five years old. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> well, there's nothing like an optimist. That's right. <laughs> that, that's that's probably why she lived to be 95. You know, yeah. That that really helps that, those that are optimists. Uh, so, okay. Anything else? Any anniversaries? Oh, Dorothy. Well, you have an anniversary with Kay. Well. No. No. <laughs> You forgot it last Sunday. Well, my goodness. Well, then we 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 definitely need to recognize it tonight. So, any other anniversaries? Okay. Well, then let's let's sing to Kay and Dorothy. Okay, any other announcements or thoughts before Pastor Tony comes? Oh, we have, he reminds me we have to take up an offering. <laughs> we are, we are Baptists, so those two things, <laughs> offerings and eating. <laughs> Father, we just thank you again for this day. We thank you for, for bringing us this evening to this uh, this house of God. So just so that we can uh, hear the message of God, Father, we just thank you for these offerings that are presented this evening. We just pray that they be may be used to the upbringing of your church. It's in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen.
1: Thank you, Frank and Linda, so much. What is the cost and what are the results of fooling yourself into thinking that you're in a right relationship with God? And expand that a little bit. What happens when a church fools itself into thinking it is pleasing God with what it does when in reality it is just doing what it wants assuming that it's honoring God. Israel had deluded itself to the point of destruction and never really even saw it coming. I think it was a surprise up until the moment that it happened as we read through the nuances of Hosea. They thought they knew God. They thought they were still worshiping God. They ignored his prophet while also thinking that help from other nations and their own version of religion could save them. Even our most sincere and well-intentioned religious practice and devotion cannot make up for adultery in our own hearts. This is a, this is a heavy text. Let's, let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word tonight. God, I thank you for who you are. Lord, I wish there were sufficient words to describe who it is that you are for us, your people. And so, Father, I pray tonight as we work our way through this passage, God, that you would guide me with complete control, keep me from... Uh, self-serving things or uh, in anything like that, Father. May, may you help me proclaim the text with clarity. Oh, Lord, would you speak to your people? Would you open their ears, their souls to hear? Father, to accept what you are saying, to realize that what you are saying to us in this passage must be heard, even though it's heavy, through the lens of who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished for us. And so, Father, I pray that you would watch over our souls as we listen to your word. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're in chapter 8 of Hosea tonight. Chapter 8, maybe maybe another month or so in Hosea before we, I think, head into Genesis. But uh, verse 1 of of chapter 8, the text says, Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Remember in Hosea 5.8, the prophet called for the trumpet to be sounded because God's judgment was coming. Now in 8.1, he calls for it again because nothing is changing. Judgment is not being removed. A vulture or really the word better word here is eagle. Uh, is now hovering over the northern kingdom of Israel in the form of the Assyrian army. Eagle would be even more appropriate because the eagle was a sigil in Assyrian art as one of their guardian deities. But twice God says my in verse 1, indicating once more that the judgment that comes in the form of the Assyrian invasion is actually God's judgment. It's the result of his hand. So the Assyrian invasion he's been talking about is right at the door now, literally hovering over Israel, ready at any moment to swoop down and invade, because as we see here, God's people have broken the covenant, they've broken the law. You would think that an army, maybe mustering all along your northern border, would give you reason for concern, but they can't see it, if it was literally happening in that moment, or at best, they can't even recognize that for what it is, what's going on, because in the midst of her spiritual adultery, Israel has become deluded. This is a crucial point in Hosea. Listen to verses two and three. To me, God is saying, to me they cry, my God, we Israel know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. So the people of Israel directly rejected God's accusation in four one, that there was no acknowledgement of God in the land. They're saying, no, 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 we know you. We know you. Why are you saying we don't know you? That's their cry. We belong to the Lord. But God rejected their claim. He says, "Israel has spurned the good. That's a word related. spurned is a word related to whoredom in chapter one. They spurned God's goodness rather than embraced it. And we read in the first part of verse four, "They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not." So God is actually recounting their <clears throat> excuse me, their entire history here, if you think back through Israel, their ongoing attempt to set up their own kind of leadership while simultaneously trying to hold on to God's blessing. Way back in 1 Samuel 8, the people of Israel asked for a king. God said they would be ruled by a king under him, not under a king of their own making, Deuteronomy 17. But their request for a king, like all the other nations had, was a rejection of God as their king. There is no breaking the sacred from the secular, in the sense that, You cannot act in a certain way here that is contrary to God and remain vertically joined to God under this covenant. They made kings, but not through me. Remember 2 Kings 15? The northern kingdom was marked by a a series of bloody coup attempts. The people set up kings, but rejected God as their king, which is a refusal to live by faith, and everything crumbled because of it. They thought they were ruling under God, but they were not. That's the first part of verse 4. The second part reads like this. With their silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. In the midst of this abandoning of God, the lives of the people of Israel were still marked by worship. Still marked by religion. Can we see that? These were deeply religious people. With the charge of spiritual whoredom, we would think it would be pure, godless anarchy in Israel, as though that is what spiritual whoredom would look like. It wasn't like that at all. It was deeply religious adultery. It was deeply ceremonial adultery. You could not have convinced these people that they weren't godly. Obviously. Right? Right? Do do we see that? You, You could not have convinced these people that they were not godly people. That's what Hosea has been trying to do, and it isn't working. Why isn't it working? Partly because they are unable to separate a life of devoted religious traditionalism and observance. They're unable to separate that from what it truly means to follow God because it looks like When when you're a very religious, traditional type person, it's almost impossible to rouse you out of spiritual deadness. Because it looks very good. It looks right. It isn't working. Hosea's word is not working. That's why they're going to be utterly destroyed. Hosea's word fell on deaf ears because they would not, could not see their worship as false. They would not listen to the warnings. Their worship was... Tragically false. It was all an illicit affair, affair to the eyes of God Almighty. Which it, It doesn't matter how we evaluate ourselves ultimately. It only matters what God sees. After the Exodus, while Moses was up on the hill receiving the covenant from God, what were the people below doing? They're restless. They're doubting. They became fearful. So they built the fire. They made the golden calf. That sin, the essence of that, was repeated throughout their history. That's where they are now. They're doing literally the exact same thing. That's a very religious-looking way to abandon the worship of God. Building up an idol, something, setting up something to worship that calls for devotion, it calls for even sacrifice, it calls for piety, but who cares? Who, Who cared that they were so religious? Beloved, how often our confidence in the ways and means to satisfy God that we have invented become a replacement for what God has already commanded. God sent prophets to shake his people out of that, and they were committed to it, so they killed the prophets. They said, like Charlton Heston, you'll have to pry our man-made religion, masquerading as faith in God from our cold, dead hands. That's what they're saying. Even when it looked like Jeroboam, Solomon's son, when all this started, might be a new Moses, looked really good, his first act as king is to set up two golden calves, one at Bethel, one at Dan. First Kings 12 25 to 33. By Hosea's time, the golden calf in Dan was no longer under Israelite control. That's why he only refers to the one in verse 5. The calf of Samaria in verse 6 is not really a description of its location, but its owner. That's the calf in verse 5 that belongs to Samaria. He says, your calf. Samaria was the capital city of Israel and was often used in the Old Testament, like Ephraim, to refer to Israel as a whole. The people used their silver and gold to make idols we need to catch that because remember Hosea has already told us in 2.8 Israel got all their silver and gold from God they used the wealth the prosperity the blessing that God had given them to make idols to replace Him it is very possible it's very possible to take God's provision or blessing and use it against Him use it to betray faith in Him alone So that we can mix him with other gods who we also look to for provision. Let me ask you a hard question. Do we believe that God blessed America so that America could become one of our many saviors? And now, God is the one spurning in verse 5. God has rejected their man-made worship. The idols in Israel are literally made by a metal worker. In other words, What they are worshipping can't possibly be God. You can't make a God. Hosea imitates his contemporary Isaiah here. Isaiah 44, 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. They really did think their idols would save them. Can there be a greater delusion to fall prey to than to think that something you built with your hands is able to be your God? Anything we build is totally dependent on us to exist so anything and everything we construct therefore to deliver us or provide for us is the opposite of God. we make replacements for him and then we try to deify them, which is exactly what they were doing in Israel. You see there's nothing new under the sun and God won't have it Look at verses seven through 10. For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up, already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Israel had gotten to the place where it genuinely believed its actions would have no consequences. That's how deluded they had. That's another way the fact that they're deluded is so evident. Again, the tone of the indictment here is their delusion. That's the tone of it. That's what God is accusing them of. God was tragically easy for them to forget about. Now, again, they still had his name on their lips. But who he really is was gone from their memory. Sowing in the wind here should be understood negatively, obviously, not as the positive it could be uh, if the wind properly distributed seed. Here the wind blows the seed that is sown away from its intended target. They reap the whirlwind in eight, seven, That's spoken almost like a proverb. We should hear it in the context of wisdom. The principle is there, Proverbs eleven. 29 whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind in other words if you do a certain action certain consequences will follow in the context of that particular action right if if you pull a cat's tail you get clawed by a cat now i would say cats are not the best example because you could not pull a cat's tail and you will still get clawed by a cat because they're evil and ruthless animals Who secretly sit in the highest places of government authority, silently plotting the overthrow of mankind. I believe that with all my heart. There's a table somewhere, that's the Illuminati, it's a bunch of cats planning the demise of mankind, terrifying animals. The the twist here, the twist here is that the verse indicates a situation where the consequences are much bigger than the actions that brought them about. That that's the point of they sow wind, they reap whirlwind. Those are two very different things. What we might briefly conceive of as no big deal becomes an absolute inferno that we can't control. Hosea is basically trying to wake like your actions have consequences. Your adultery cannot go on unchecked forever. It won't go on unchecked forever. Again, what is so shocking as we continue through Hosea and hear these heavy indictments is that is the often unremarkable nature of the sin in Israel that God was calling full-on adultery. He was still there. They were still doing things out of the law. He was still a part of their religion, of their worship, of their identity. But God doesn't see syncretistic religion, mixing him with other things, as acceptable. He calls that the actions of a brazen whore, is what God calls that. Hosea says the very things Israel pursues will be turned against them. That's his point. They pursue provision. They're going to want for everything. They pursue wealth. They're going to have nothing. They pursue stability and security. They'll be overrun. They pursue nationalism. Their nation will be destroyed. In sowing the wind, they will reap the whirlwind. And the reference to sowing and reaping is not an accident here. Baal worship was a fertility cult. It promised good harvests. In these verses, Hosea says, sowing to the Baals will reap a harvest, the whirlwind of God's destruction. So their harvest will be no harvest, really. That will be their harvest, nothing. In Hebrew, the words no heads and no flower in verse 7, they actually rhyme. The grain has no head, the field yields no bread. Baal isn't going to make the land plentiful. He can't. He's made out of gold or silver or even wood, right? He's powerless in the face of God's judgment. And to top it all off, any literal harvest Israel did produce would be consumed by other nations. In fact, Israel itself becomes the meal for other nations in verse 8. Ephraim in verse 9 is as restless for a partner as a wild donkey is. And Israel could have trusted in the Lord, in the Lord for security but pursued alliances with other nations. Like Can, can, can we hear that in the American church? Can we, can we hear... The implicit warning in God's Word. I'm just, I'm just asking America as wonderful as it is, is a kingdom of the world. And we are so passionate to make an alliance with it to survive. That's not how we're going to survive. It's not how we're going to survive. Can we see that? Do we understand that? They hired lovers. They paid money to secure these alliances. And they didn't buy peace. What it did was it made Israel look like it had deep pockets to pay off their threats. So other nations came looking for payment. It was just a vicious cycle. Do we see the cost of not trusting in God alone? There is always a price for hiring outside help when God is your king. Always. He's your king. Like you have a king, believer. Church, you have a king. In verse 10, God gathers for a harvest of judgment. Go to Assyria for help. Assyria is the one that comes back to destroy you. You sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. You live and die by alliances with human governments, Christian. You sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. As far as earthly peace and safety go. Look at verses 11 through 14. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, They have become to him, to God, altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities, so I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. Notice the use of the word multiplied there. In the beginning of this text, we, we, we can't stress this enough. Israel is full of religious activity. They are very committed and very serious about their ceremonies. But it's meaningless it's meaningless. And how that would have been such an insult from Hosea. Right? Just as it would be from some preacher. Now, you mean to imply that all these things that we're doing, that we work so hard on and are so committed to, are meaningless? You see, God has his prophets say things that people are bound to reject. God doesn't play He doesn't play. Their self-righteous, monotonous observance of their religion is a mask for their adultery. It is exactly like a wife who goes overboard to be kind to her husband and do nice things for him while she's having an outright affair behind his back. That's exactly what their religious practice is in Israel. They've forgotten their maker. So as they eat their sacrifices in verse 13, God will devour them in verse 14. They'll eat their sacrifices, God will devour. You see it? He'll send fire on their cities, their allies will turn on them. God's law and what He demanded were clear in verse 12. And it could be there when Hosea references the law that he means specifically that God had told them in the law to only offer their sacrifices at one location. That all went out the window when the nation divided they had to set up their own religion. That's that's the core of what they had done. God saying there's one place where I want you to offer your sacrifices that's put in place to ensure that they weren't free. They needed to know you're not free to create and add and subtract as you see fit. You're not free to do that. But they didn't keep that commandment. Like Like I said, the nation is divided. They've multiplied altars for sinning in verse 11, this, this is, that is, that is a weighty accusation. Man-made additions to God's clear and holy word multiply sin. They don't increase righteousness. Do we hear that? Cause, cause what we, we, we are prone in our nature to want to assist a little bit. So God, God is very clear in His prescriptions for the church what it should be about, what it should be focused on, how it should govern it. He's very clear about that. What do we do? We add to it. We, we, we go further than the text does because we think this will add in some type of protection against failure. And in so doing, we are multiplying our sin. That, that's how God sees these attempts to do him one better. That's what's happened in Israel. That's precisely what's happened. Beloved, the the more the subjective preference, the more that subjective preference and man-made tradition multiply in the church, the more that sin increases. Largely in the church in the form of conflict and division and dissension, etc. Why won't we just listen to him? Why do we reject what is so obvious? Right? It, it, it's, it's just, I know it, it, it can be funny and, and everywhere I've ever been as a, as a pastor, it's, it's talked about and almost joked about and, and about how divisive and, and how much conflict there is in the church and how like you can't touch this and you can't mess with that and you don't want to do this and you don't want to offend them. And it's just, it's, it's every church I've ever been a part of since I was a boy. Like every single church is like that. Mired in conflict, mired in trouble, mired in division that just compounds over the years because nothing ever really gets dealt with. Right? It, it, and it does it, would, would it ever occur to us that maybe the system we've created is partly responsible for that? But you can't change the system. It's the way we've always done it. And so nothing ever gets Nothing ever gets fixed. Church, church is hard. Church becomes so difficult. Have we been deluded by our own practices? Is that possible? Can we at least ask the question, do we think we are pleasing God when really the only thing we're trying to do is please ourselves and assume He's going to accept it? If, if you, if you peel away enough layers, do you know what you find is, is a lot of the reasons sometimes for all the things that continue to go on? Because that's what somebody just likes. That's what they prefer. And they're in charge. Somehow. And they'll hold a church hostage. Like. God remembers in verse 13, Israel forgets in verse 14. They forgot their covenant Lord, their maker, literally their husband. And again, they forgot him while continuing to use his name, continuing to pray, continuing to offer sacrifices. Remember, the doing of things does not substitute for love. If God had not painted this relationship as a marriage, if God had not revealed that he desires steadfast love and not sacrifice, this wouldn't have mattered to him it matters so much to him that he's going to send Assyria to wipe this nation off the face of the planet forever. The doing of things, no matter how much dedication we do them with, no matter how religious they are, no matter how respectable they are, they do not substitute for intimate knowledge of God. They do not substitute for love for God. Instead, they become the very source of the problem that brings about judgment in Hosea. Israel was who she was because of God and God alone, and they had completely forgotten where they came from, so to speak. God was their maker, and they tried to make their own gods. Verses 5 and 6 and verse 14. Beloved, it has always been the delusion of humanity that religion saves. I I don't think Israel set out to commit adultery. In the relationship motif, they were just flirting Right? Just having some fun out there with the other nations. Tweak a little bit here, bring in some extra help here. And I, because I, it seems like they had in their heads that the reason for the prescriptions that God had given them, their ceremonies, their rituals, I think they thought God has prescribed all of that because God loves all that formality. We tend to like it, it has to be. There, there's a we we have this reverence for formality, as though it's more godly. I read the Psalms, and God really likes symbols. Those are not quiet things, right? He loves instruments, but but what we we have deified formality. We think that's who God is. That that's no. What Hosea is revealing is that God is a lover. He loves marriage. He loves the relationship built on love. He tells them that very thing. I desire steadfast love from you. Stop sacrificing. But Israel has crafted their own religion, and when we do that, love is not necessary. Love isn't necessary. And God will destroy them for that. Twice Hosea refers to altars for sinning in verse 11. The original purpose for altars in Israel was to deal with the problem of sin, right? At least in a foreshadowing way. The animal died in place of the worshiper. Foreshadowing the actual atoning sacrifice of Jesus. But Hosea is saying now, this is mind-blowing. When he says those are altars for sinning, he means it as a terrible parody of what the intention was with altars. Altars are not occasions now for the forgiveness of sins, but for the committing of sin in Israel. The very act of sacrifice had become an act of sin. That's, that, that's what happens when love for and knowledge of God is replaced by our best practices. Those very things become sin. And just imagine, when you look at that, how long has that gone on that they're blind to it? That they're deluded by it? They don't even realize that's what it is. When Hosea says this to them, they're like, what are you talking about? I mean, imagine how hard it would have been to hear. God said to make sacrifices in the law. We're doing the law. What are you talking about? We're, we're sinning by... You're crazy. You're crazy. Israel's, Israel's sacrifices in verse 13 have become like Cain's in Genesis 4. They're the fruit of their own labor. Of their own hands. These people are building their own gods. Literally. Look what we made for you, God. God rejects them. God cannot and will not be manipulated into becoming a God who takes pleasure in sacrifice rather than steadfast love by our man-made offerings. We are prone to delusion. God is never prone to being deluded. Now, how did Israel get so deluded that the words of warning from Hosea fell on deaf ears? How could they not see what they were doing? How can you not know while you're doing it that claiming to worship the one true God, your covenant Lord Yahweh, and Baal, and whatever other statues you were building, how could you not see while you were doing that what you were doing? Because they didn't. They didn't think of it as sinful. They didn't think of it as adultery. And 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 the, the lunacy of that, like like if you, you think of that in a marriage, if 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 a if, if a partner was with multiple other partners, and honestly didn't think they were cheating, that that's what you're seeing here. They honestly don't. That's not adultery. That's not what adultery is. No, that, that's precise. That's that's how deluded Israel has become. My dad used to say when he preached that. People who are deceived don't know they're deceived because they're deceived. I I don't know if that was original with him. I just remember him saying that all the time. And and in chapter 8, in verses 2 and 3, we see that people can think they know God when they do not. In verse 4, people can think they rule their lives under God when they do not. In verses 4 to 6, people can think they worship God when they do not. In verses 7 through 10, people can think human help can save them. It does not. In verses 11 through 14, people can think religion saves them, but it does not. People can say the right things about God and not know Him at all. They can do the right things, they can do very pious and religious things while being completely unfaithful to Him. This is what we have to realize when God paints the sinfulness of creating our own ways to worship and serve Him in terms of adultery, in terms of whoredom. We like to make up our own terms and practices and traditions for what it really means to know God, what it really means to be close to Him. But the question we need to be asking ourselves ultimately is not, do I know God? Do you do all that so that you can say, I know God? Then we're prone to answer that question, do I know God, with the measuring stick we provide for what it actually means to know God. We create our own system. And, And you just... You, you hear this? We all, I just feel that. I just think that. Well, to me, okay, that's great. That's great for you. That's good. It means nothing. Nothing. The, the, the question that matters is, does God know me? That, and I love the way Paul implies the importance of that distinction. It's not, do I know God? The question is, does God know me? Paul implies that that is radically important in his letter to the churches in Galatia to distinguish. In other words, it's not mere semantics. It's not. In Galatians 4.9, he says to them, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? The Holy Spirit had Paul clarify in that sentence that to be saved is not the result of a discovery we have made. It is the result of God's discovery of me. And notice the connection there between being known by God and not becoming enslaved again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, which in context there, shockingly, includes the law. Now that Christ has come and purchased salvation for His people, every means of being right with God that is not based exclusively on the Gospel is a weak and worthless elementary principle that comes from the world and does not come from God. Salvation is not something we find. I know it feels that way from our end and that's all right. It's something God does to us and for us. And that matters, beloved. Because that means we are His possession. We're not renting Him for salvation. God calls all the shots. He makes all the rules. He provides all the means of forgiveness. He provides every ounce of our righteousness. And yet we still court other lovers. Calves are not the only shape that idols can take. Some, some of the implications of this text for the church can be really hard to take. I'm gonna preach the text. I don't want to shy away from it. But I also don't have any desire to bludgeon you over the head with it. Okay? My, my, my point in, in what I'm about to say is not that Moundsville Baptist Church is this kind of church. Okay? would you be willing to hear this as a warning of something we cannot become? And if it is what we are, you see, I don't think I've been here long enough to diagnose the church exhaustively, but if this is what we are, you will know that better than me. If this is what we are, we can't remain that. I want you, my church, to know something. I'm not your enemy. All right? I I don't ever want it to be the pastor versus the church. Unless it's like a hill really worth dying on. But God is speaking in this text. The word lives. We always need to listen. I would propose to you that in much of the American church today... That's where I live. That's that's what I am, right? It's what I study. It's, It's what I read. It's what I've been a part of. I would propose to you that in much of the American church today, idols have taken the shape of traditions and preferences and standards for what it means to be godly that God has never required. And I would further propose that we have done that ultimately because we don't like what the Word of God actually says about what he desires for the church or doesn't say. So we've filled in the gaps with our own preferences, our own knowledge, our own wisdom, with man-made creations that eventually become too sacred to touch. You know what you call things like that? Sacred cows. You think that's a coincidence? That the shape of the idols were calves Right? That's where that term comes from. We often refuse to rest in grace and take God at His word. We always think we know better, so we create a religion we just assume contains what God wants. There's, there's so much that we do out of a genuine desire to honor God. I don't question that automatically. That isn't really about Him at all. What if much of what we do that we think we have to do in order to show honor for our God is the multiplying of our sin? Of a lack of faith, not a demonstration of piety and righteousness. Is that possible? We have to be able to reason together. And, and it's, you, you can't even ask the questions normally without a fight. Why? Why is it always a fight? I'm not, I do not believe I am overstating the case when I say that what's underneath the current in most churches is this ongoing sense of conflict. It's just, it's, it's, it's so prevalent. And look, a lot of it, I'm willing to admit that, that maybe a lot of that is because I'm gun shy you know i'm 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 very tentative now in my life i'm not saying that that's not a brag i don't know that that's righteous okay i don't know how to think of it why is it always a, why is everything always a fight it just it just doesn't make sense things are a fight because those things that we're fighting for they're not honoring to god usually they're idols We do them for ourselves. It's what we like. We've decided that fill in the blank is important. We've decided that that's what has to happen. Right? I mean, we've decided that you have to dress like this in order to do that thing. It's one way we do it. We've decided this is what has to happen in order for this to be honoring to God. We've decided what makes service of any kind acceptable to God. Could it be? Could it be? that we have deluded ourselves away from grace and spurned the beauty of Jesus and the gospel with our demand for our own way of doing things? Can we at least ask the question? Because religious duties done in the name of God can very quickly become sinful acts. We aren't better than these people. We are not above these people. These were God's people. Why can traditions very quickly become idols to us that we'll kill other people for? Oh, man. Well, because they they not only hold sentimental value for us, they hold spiritual value for us. Exactly what God is accusing them of is what happens when you do what they did. What is sentimental becomes sacred. It becomes spiritual. Spiritual. And we sanctify as sacred things that God never required. The Bible doesn't call that a difference of opinion amongst us in the church. The Bible calls that adultery. Right? It's it's high-class substitution of religious practice for genuine love for God. It's whoredom. It's a terrifying indictment. And you can get so deluded by these things that you won't even be able to see it. That's Hosea 8 for the church. It's, it's, it's a warning. Here's the, here's the test for us here at Moundsville Baptist. Here's the test. Just, I just want you to think inside. And I don't want this to defeat any of you. It's not, they're not ending here. There's more to say. All right. Just what ceremony here, what ritual, what long-standing event or way of doing things that if it got taken away or if it got changed would make you angry. And again, I look, I do not have a list of events I'm changing. That's not my point. That's how you know when an idol is being exposed. What thing would irritate you enough to start an all-out war of division and dissension. That's that's how you know what you worship. Okay? Because that happens. We We know how deluded we are by our own performance and work for God is what makes us acceptable to Him. By the level of anger and panic we feel when someone or something threatens to take any of it away from us. What if here, if that's the case, we trusted in the Lord for better things? Let us all hear the word of the Lord tonight because I am not holy in this. I have my preferences too. Even our most sincere and well-intentioned religious practice and devotion cannot make up for the adultery that still resides in our hearts look at verse 12 were i to write for him for Ephraim, for israel my laws by the ten thousands they would be regarded as a strange thing that's what it means to be in the category of human remember six seven we go the way of adam we have adam's dna God could give us the law tens of thousands of times. He could give us instructions tens of thousands of times. It would still be strange to us and not seem good enough to us. God could write it tens of thousands of times. See how he calls out to his people here. We would not be able to submit to it or obey it or keep it. We would not trust his instructions were enough. We would not trust it. Israel should have already known this about itself, that they can't submit, they can't obey, they can't keep it. So when God comes longing for them, they should have said, yes, take me, deliver me, I'm a mess. Nobody thought that. Why? Because they were so religious. And we do, we do the same thing. We're just, we're just covered. In religious observance and practice and tradition, and, and we go so deeply into it that we don't even realize anymore. Wait, is this what God required? Or is this what I require? What did Israel do in light of its ongoing inability to keep the law? Well, they created a religion they could keep and that they liked. The only problem is God won't accept it, they're deluded. God is, is telling them, look, you are an adulterous wife, and they're saying, no, 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 we know you. No, nope, no. No, 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 we know you. We are good, God. You stop it. You knock it off. We're good. Our relationship is good. We really think we can win God's approval through religious performance, through moral principles, through outward respectability. We really believe that. Let, let me let give me you an example. I don't want to run the risk of being tarred and feathered here, but just... Stay with me, all right. This is why we put a premium on things like suits. I like wearing suits, I don't mind. Not gonna stop wearing suits. There's no campaign against suits. You can't straw man this argument, all right? I don't I'm fine with it. But if I didn't wear a suit, would it cause trouble? I probably Suppose I had the audacity to suggest that you don't have to wear a suit to be an usher. Suppose I suggested that. Not because I think it's more cool to wear jeans. Who cares about what is cool? 43, I I try to be cool. My kids remind me every second of every day, I am not cool. So that's not the point here at all. So that that wouldn't be why I would say you, you don't have to wear a suit to be an usher, it would be because it's it's preposterous for us to think that God is impressed with wool and higher-end cotton blends. Because that's what we're saying. And if we think that's not possible, that's what's happening in Hosea 8. In essence, God desires steadfast love, not sacrifice. He's after a marriage. He's not, he's not, he's not after a parade of well-dressed people. Well-dressed by whose standards? Who decided... Ask the hard questions. Who decided that was holy? Who made that call? Well, it's a sign of respect. If I were to meet the president, I would wear a suit. Why not wear one for the Lord? Because he isn't a president. He's God. This is God. We actually think this is better for him. And that's Israel and Hosea. We offer up wool and cotton blends in place of genuine humility. Genuine brokenness. Genuine love for one another. Genuine concern for one another. Genuine mercy for one another. All that gets traded in for things like this. You you can be rotten to people in one of these things. Presidents are in the category of Adam. They have the gall to think they're really something. And they are. I, I get it. So, of course, you wear a suit in their presence. I I get the place of being respectful of earthly institutions. Beloved, the church is not one of those. My works are as filthy rags. Also, make sure you dress up. God wants us to look nice. God wants us to wear our best. Oh, it's just... How does how, how does that happen? Who who said that? Where is that? I know the priests in the Old Testament had garments prescribed. I know that preachers don't, neither do ushers, neither do deacons. Again, don't worry. I'm not trying to write a new law here. I'm not announcing a change. I just want us to search our hearts. That's all. Are we sure we don't do things or hold on to things because we've deluded ourselves into thinking that these are the things God cares about when God desires steadfast love and not sacrifice? It is really hard for love and grace to flow where what's really running underneath everybody is this belief that if we don't do things like dress a certain way, we aren't honoring God. That stifles love and grace, if that's what's going on, if that's the reason for it. Not campa- campaigning for no suits. I like suits. I'm Italian. I was born in a suit. My wife likes it when I wear suits. I'm I'm, I'm. 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 That's not my point. I'm. I'm asking us to think. I'm asking us to think. Are Are we sure that our performance and traditions aren't masquerading for a lack of genuine affection for the person of Christ, or genuine love for one another? They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. What happened to that crystal clear statement from Jesus? Like that will do it. That would do it. You hear your Lord. That would do it. We come up with all these strategies and some of them are fine to reach our community. How do we reach our community? You love each other. It'll be like a magnet. It'll be like a light. It'll, it'll just, it it be like our building was on fire. People come and watch fires. They love them. We love fires. It's just, it just becomes too easy for us to not love each other. It just becomes too easy for us. And look, I don't, look, you, you, I don't think the answer is have more classes on how to love each other. We've had those. I don't think that's the answer. The answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the answer. It's always been the answer. It always will be the answer. Like if if I and I mean you understand like uh, it, it's just it's a lot easier to look righteous by making sure we keep up our traditions than it is to love and bear with one another. That's really hard. It is. It's really hard. It's really hard. Beloved, we need a Savior. That's where we need to fix our eyes. Who is going to deliver us from these bodies of death? Who's going to do that? I don't think people clinging to traditions is automatically a sign that they're just some kind of carnal, stubborn, and difficult, mean person. I don't think that. I'm sure that's the case sometimes, but I think the fangs come out so sharp and so fast precisely because we really do attach our standing with God to the practices and traditions we've created. I think that's why they're protected with so much passion. Are all traditions bad? No. No. Do they all need to go away just because they're traditions or preferences? No. No. They just need to be identified as what they are. Because things inevitably just change. It's natural. It happens. Could you imagine if your, your child stayed a two-year-old their entire lives? You would not think that was healthy. We would not think that. We would, we would be so alarmed by that. Unless something is changing into something that's downright sinful, which the Bible gets to define, not us, then our long-standing preference for something being a certain way rather than being another certain way carries no weight and no authority. None. That We just need to be there. That's all I'm saying. Why change it? Why not change it? It's the same question. Right? It's the exact same question. Why change this? Why not change it? Do we realize how much power sentimentality has in a church? How much sway people's feelings hold over a church, right? Beloved, there are feet to be washed. There's a town to love. There's a gospel to be preached. There's an eternity that is coming. Nothing we do is going to make up for our deficiencies. No gift we bring is going to cover up the fact that by nature we are harlots. But we don't need to make up for them. We don't need to bring gifts. We're accepted in Christ eternally and irrevocably. Church should reflect that even in the way it's structured. So cry out to Jesus if this is where you are. Again, we preach. We try to preach the text. If this is where we are, cry out to Jesus. He will forgive you of all your sin. He will gift you all of his righteousness. He will quiet you with His love. He will shepherd you and lead you and guide you forever through everything. He will return for you and take you unto Himself and to His Father. This grace, this mercy, this love is the basis for all of your standing with Him. And it cannot be revoked. Not one ounce of it for all who believe, regardless of what we get right or get wrong. This is the gospel. It is enough. So enough of the games, enough of the show. This is enough. Keep yourself in His love for He knows you and loves you and will sustain you. Our grip will loosen. Sometimes more than once over the course of a few days. His grip never will. That's how we keep from becoming people like this. We hang on to that. That He's not going to let go of me. The Gospel is the key. It's the basis for everything. This is true religion. This is the truth that actually sets people free. This is what God accepts. We, we, Now, I know we talk holy, we talk righteous. We all know how to speak church. Beloved, God is not fooled by any of it. Do we really think that kind of religious presentation of ourselves to others is what God requires of us anyway? You, you, you be at peace. God will make you clean. Respectability and offerings from humanity are nauseating to God. God desires steadfast love, not sacrifice. The gospel of grace unmasks this delusion that we can serve God in such a way that he's in our debt. We're not his employees, beloved. Stop working for a paycheck. Stop. We delude ourselves into thinking that what we are doing is what saves us and is why God accepts us. That's why, if you scratch the surface of almost anyone in the church, we're not only often struggling with our insurance, but also this unbelief is the very root of all conflict, all division, all dissension, that comes from this almost bloodthirsty clinging to our own traditions and preferences. Though I speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, I feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation, Hebrews 6, 9. For what it's worth, I don't want any of you to think that I walk out of this pulpit tonight thinking that you are like this. That was never my point. I really love this church. I love it. So, Tony, do you really think we're that bad? No, I don't that's that wasn't the point here please if you can understand where i'm coming from right I, I read the bible i try to understand it i i i don't get too excited about what humanity is capable of i i can't i can't right and it's just it's it's amazing i know it's long tonight i'm almost done it's just it's amazing how quickly things can go sour and how fast things can go off the rails. And I, I I don't I don't want us to be like Israel was. I don't want us to be deluded by our religious practice, right? I, I don't want us to be deluded by the level or lack thereof of our own devotion. I don't want any of us standing on what we do. I don't want any of us thinking that whether or not God loves this church and approves of it and blesses it has anything to do with whether or not I'm doing a good enough job, that that's not the way it works. I don't want us to ever be divided. Ever. I don't want us to be insecure. I don't want us to be afraid. I'd rather be real, even if it's messy. That's, that's at least better than being delusional, isn't it? Don't spurn grace with your performance. Don't do it. Let Jesus carry the weight of the world on his shoulders. Let him do that. All right? All right? Let Jesus take the responsibility of building our church. Let Him do it. Let Jesus take the responsibility of you and I being pleasing to God. Right? He saves. Beloved, He saves. He keeps. He loves. He stays. He doesn't go out. And He has already made you and I presentable to Almighty God. Everything will be fine. Even if we get it wrong sometimes. We'll stand or fall together then. So be it. But he will not let us go. He won't do it. He won't do it. Believe the gospel. Rest in Christ. Rest in Christ. This relentless love that he has for us. We wait till we get to chapter 11. God is just relentless. Right, I'm here. I'll be down front. If you need to come and pray for any reason... I'll be here as we sing this final hymn. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this time that you've given to us with your word to gather together and open your word and hear it and celebrate it together and listen and let it do what it does, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Again, it's a sword. It's always a sword. But it is also always the word of Christ our Savior who heals what he lays open. So, Father, I ask you that nobody leave here tonight condemned. Nobody. Let us all rest in you. Let us all rest in you. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.